This podcast is part of the Telerik Developer Network. Telerik by Progress. Sleep Code, the official Telerik podcast. I'm your host, Ed Charbonneau, and with me today is Robert Bodingheimer. How are you doing, Robert? Good. How are you doing today? Excellent. Uh, thanks for joining me on the show today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, so we were recently at the Heartland Developer Conference, and um, I saw a session on the roster that was talking about Fiddler, a product that's... Uh, close to home with me since I, I work for the company that creates the product. So I went and stopped by your session and uh, I thought you had a lot of really interesting information about Fiddler and, and how to use Fiddler to troubleshoot websites and, and solve a lot of problems that us web developers face uh, and uh, pretty much anybody that's using uh, any kind of web API calls is going to face. So I, I invited you to be on the show and uh, talk about some of that stuff. But before we get started, why don't you give us a little background about you, Robert, and, and what you're doing. Okay. So I've been a f- full-time web developer for probably about 22 years now. And my full-time job, I'm a developer on an e-commerce website. So I use Fiddler pretty much every day and DevTools. And I also have done conference speaking for about the last 13 years or so. And I'm an author for Pluralsight. I've got eight different courses, one of which is on Fiddler. And I just got my Microsoft MVP for the 10th year in a row. And I Congratulations. was named. Thank you. And I was just named a Telerik developer expert as well, for, focusing on Fiddler. Excellent. So 10 years as a Microsoft MVP. Uh, that's, that's impressive. Nice, nice work. Thank you. And we're glad to have you aboard as a, a developer... Uh, expert on the Telerik Developer Expert Program. Um, so we f- we find people that are really passionate about stuff that we build, and um, we see people out talking and writing and uh, doing sh- uh, video and audio content. We, we kind of have a similar program to the Microsoft MVP program. And uh, I saw you talking about Fiddler quite a bit, so we, we gave you a little invite to that. Uh, so we're glad to have you aboard. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So we've We've mentioned Fiddler, the name, several times so far, but for people out there that may have never heard of Fiddler before, let's give them a, a brief uh, introduction to what, what it is we're talking about today. Sure. So Fiddler's a free tool that is meant to help you troubleshoot problems with HTTP and HTTPS. So Eric Lawrence created it quite a few years ago, and I think he's working at, on the Microsoft Clipart team. And at the time, people would call in with problems where they wanted to download something and it didn't work. And there just weren't very good tools available back then. There was like Microsoft Network Monitor, which does basic tracing, but it wasn't easy for people to use and troubleshoot. So uh, he didn't know C Sharp, he didn't know .NET, and he didn't know HTTP. But he went off and did a lot of weekend work and created Fiddler. And that's now been acquired by Telerik since, I think, 2012. But it's meant to be a tool to sit between your browser and your web server and watch the traffic that goes back and forth. So generally, new people that haven't used the web a lot think there's just one request going to a server and coming back. But the average web page today is like 100 requests. 
And so Fiddler lets me look at all of those specific requests and see if they're performing like we would expect. So I primarily use it for a lot of just debugging and troubleshooting really anytime you're using HTTP. Yeah, and there's one important factor that we didn't mention, and that is Fiddler's 100% free. And that's something yes. that Telerik's been, or Progress now, uh, is committed to keeping it free. Uh, so this is something that you can go download, no strings attached, and uh, you can start uh, fiddling, <laughs> seeing what these uh, HTTP requests are up to. Uh, and if you don't have something like this going on, then you know HTTP requests are pretty much a black box. You kind of like throw your data in this hole and hope it comes out the other side intact. Exactly, and especially a lot of people use a lot of different partners to construct for analytics and other things they're doing on their web pages. So it gives you insight into how well are those particular pieces coming together? Are they functioning correctly? Yeah, it's for your you know day to day stuff. You, you may or may not need something like this, but when you run into bigger uh, bigger problems and more complex things that you're doing, you, you definitely need something like this. Uh, we'll get into some scenarios here in a minute. I'll, I'll give you a little background on one of the things I've done with it. Um, I could not have figured out how to write a piece of custom OAuth uh, middleware without Fiddler. There's just way too many things going on, uh, sending requests and handshaking and all that stuff. Um, if you can't see those requests going through, then <laughs> you're definitely shooting into the dark. Uh, so that's just one one small use for Fiddler, and we've got a whole lot more lined up. And that's actually a good example of a lot of times where I've had to do something. I've gone to something that does work. So you can use Fiddler and see a situation where either somebody else is using it or where it's working in one case but not in another. I'll use Fiddler very often to trace the good, and then I can look at a bad, and it's a lot easier to look at the two traces together and figure out what am I not doing right when I can see how a good one should work. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Like, go go see how it's done correctly and where right. it's working. Lead by example type of thing. Um, it, so in your session, uh, you have a lot of good examples of, you know, basic troubleshooting uh, problems that I know I've come across a million times. Uh, let's get into some of those. And, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll start off with... Um, this uh, idea of mixed content in HTTP and HTTPS. So we have uh, a lot of best practices being used today in uh, having secure uh, certificates on your website or your application uh, where you need HTTPS, right? Yep. So what say. are some of the uh, caveats to this? So what, what tends to happen and what we've done for a long time is we had secured areas of websites that actually needed the confidentiality. So areas like uh, contact us or logging in or checking out where you're doing credit cards. A lot of people have websites that are both HTTP where there's normally publicly accessible information and there's HTTPS. And what you run into is you're often reusing code on the server side and you create a link say to an image that's pointed out somewhere even to a third party that's using HTTP. And then you suddenly get that included on a page that wants to use HTTPS. So I'm sure you've seen browsing around on various sites, you get the mixed content warning on the bottom. That's just telling you the page is using HTTPS, but some of the resources, either the 
images or JavaScript or CSS are being served from something that's not using HTTPS. So you don't want to have that happen. You know, you don't want to have a customer of yours on your website. You've done all the work to set up uh, HTTPS and you think everything's working okay. And somebody made one uh, reference wrong and the customer seeing a mixed content warning like this might not be secure, which is not a good situation to be in. So at, at best, you have this scenario where there's like a yellow lock icon or something like that. Right. And I think Chrome is getting ready to step up their alerts to be a little more aggressive. They are. Uh, so if yep. you have mixed content, you're, you're pretty much going to get the red, you know, big right, red flashing, do not go here type of situation. Um, so worst case you get that, or sorry, best case you get that. Worst case, you're attaching some kind of script from a non-secure site, and that could potentially allow some kind of uh, middle man in the middle or, or malicious code to execute on your website. Right. Yep. So the idea with one of the things I talked about in the session was if you go into DevTools, so if you have Chrome, the nice thing is you've got DevTools built in. You can actually just hit F12, open the DevTools up, go to the Network tab, and they also have a Security tab. And now they've changed it where if I go to that page again, the Security tab, for instance, will split out on the left-hand side. Here's all of the requests that are done correctly, and they'll indicate exactly which requests were made uh, not using HTTPS. So it becomes very easy for you to narrow down which specific requests are wrong so that you can go in and make those or fix those. So we also took, we kind of took a different approach to instead of being in that situation where we weren't sure if, if our content would be on a secure or a non-secure page, you can actually use what's called protocol-less URLs. So when you do a link to a third party, like um, we use a CDN for our website. So all of our images are hosted on a CDN, which is just servers all around the United States that are closer to my customers than my data center is. When I reference those, I need to use a, a domain name. And when I do that, instead of saying HTTP or HTTPS, you can leave that part off and just say slash slash and then the reference. And what that tells the browser is look at how the page was requested and ask for these resources the same way. So we've just converted to reference on all of our resources using protocol-less and then you never end up in that situation because it picks the right one to use based on how the page was requested. Right, so the idea is you leave out the HTTP or HTTPS colon portion of right. the URL. Right. And that then defaults to whatever's being called in the address bar. Right, when we're pointing at external domains. You know, obviously within our site, we just do the relative links where we're saying, go to this folder and get the images or whatever we're going to do that way. But when you need to reference a fully fully qualified domain name, you just can leave the protocol off. Now, this does require that whatever service you're using has a uh, secured uh, connection available. Correct. Yes. What you're going to want, if you're going to do a page with HTTPS, right, you're going to want to make sure all your partners comply. There's no magic if they don't have a secure channel that it's going to automatically turn HTTPS. But if they do, it will pick the correct one. Right. Um, now, what if there's a resource being called from within another resource, like a JavaScript dependency links out to something externally? 
So you would still run into problems. So if, in other words, if you had a JavaScript file, which also had a, a, a reference to something else external that they happen to use a fully qualified domain name, if they don't use this technique or don't just choose HTTPS, that's the other option. A lot of people are just saying, I'm going to always reference those with HTTPS if it's supported, because then at worst, if I'm on a non-secured page, at least all the resources are using HTTPS, you don't get a mixed content warning in that situation. Does that make sense? If I, yeah. yeah, so as you pull, so you can choose to just say, I'm going to say HTTPS all the time, and then that would work as well. And how, how could we identify which, which files are, you know, if we have a CSS or a JavaScript file that's doing this, how could we identify which ones incorrectly calling that content. So what I typically do is, so if you go into Fiddler, you can also uh, enable the protocol column. That's the other way you can find out who's requesting things wrong. So I could see, first of all, in your scenario that the first JavaScript file came down maybe correctly. I can see later on that a resource was requested using HTTP. I actually just go into Fiddler and say, I want to find sessions. I'll type in the name that is the wrong URL. It will actually show all the references to that throughout all of my requests I made to the website. So it'll point out the initial JavaScript file that made that request. So that's how that's I typically a, do it. That's a pretty powerful tool to have. And I'll give you one warning. It took me years to figure this out. I've literally used Fiddler for forever. And one of the things I didn't notice when you do that find and you look for sessions, there's a checkbox that says decode um, compressed content that's not defaulted to on and I use HTTP compression for all my resources and you should because it just saves you bandwidth and makes it faster. So when I do that search, if, if the JavaScript that references the second one use compression, like I said, which it should by default, the find won't find that. So make sure when you go under find sessions, you check the decode compressed content, then it can search within that compressed content and find it. Okay. Interesting. So I'll, I'll make a note of that and look for it in the docs and make sure that's um, linked in the show notes for people to see. Okay. That's good stuff. Uh, and another uh, excellent point that you hit uh, when I was in your session is a, an idea of you know troubleshooting images that are used in your web page or your web app. And uh, you know being a developer and a designer, I, I kind of understand how uh, images work and and how compression works on images and how to fine-tune these things myself but a lot of people out there don't have that experience and they just kind of grab an image it looks good they stick it in their site uh, and then before you know it you've got this massive bloat problem where your app's not loading fast and something's taking a lot of time and what do you know there's a huge like five meg image sitting in the background somewhere making things look pretty yep yeah, so I, the way that I typically go after that is in Fiddler, there's kind of two different things I would look for. I first make the request to the website, and there's the size column or the body size column. I'll sort by that so I can see the largest files overall. I can also go into statistics and see a breakdown. It does a, a chart for me of what content type is the most used on a page. So if I go do that first, select all the requests, you can usually see that Either JPEG or PNG will be a huge slice of the pie, so you kind of know where to look. Once I look at the web sessions and sort, you can see exactly what you said, which you can see 
a particular image that's just way too big. So I'll see it's not atypical to see a meg or 700k files, and then I can start digging into why. So I'll typically click the image, and it seems like the the most basic mistakes people make. They pick the wrong image format. So in other words, you should be using a JPEG um, for photos, not a PNG. And if you ever want to see, you can take the two of them side by side. And the compression built into JPEG for photos is so much better if you take advantage of it. So you often see that they just picked the wrong image format. But then if you go into JPEGs, you can often do a trade-off of quality versus size. So you mentioned that you said you're designing. You mentioned that to designers, and they usually get a little uptight about mm -hmm. hearing quality. So I'll typically bring up a web page. I'll take the same image and compress it nine different ways at various quality levels, and say you pick the original, and I'll show you one that's a lot smaller that looks exactly the same. And then we'll kind of go through that scenario to convince them that on the web, you can trade off quite a bit of quality as far as the the measurement of quality. It'll still visually look fine, but you can make a JPEG file be a quarter or even smaller of its original size just by doing very basic optimizations. So that's yeah, one way. Time. Yep, go ahead. A lot of times you can't tell the difference between the images. And another another thing is sometimes it just doesn't matter. Like in your right. example, you showed, you know, it's a background image that's just there to kind of provide some of a backdrop for a homepage header or something like that, where right. you're not focused on the details anyway. It's just, it's there to kind of be pretty. Yeah. And I think that was 600 K and we got it down to like 60 K. And like you said, it was mm -hmm. slightly blurry, but it didn't matter because it was a background. Yeah. The, we, we don't need to point fingers, but we, we can say that it was an off the cuff, uh, real world experiment. Yes. <laughs> you yes. kind of pulled a, uh, conference website that was live and in use. This wasn't like a, canned scenario that you came up with you like right. did it on the fly yeah you can found... find them almost anywhere <laughs> yeah that's true so the other thing i did is uh, eric had created a an extension for fiddler called image bloat and so the other thing that happens is you take pictures especially on your phones or your cameras it puts a bunch of metadata into that image about the shutter speed and all the other settings none of that matters to somebody who's looking at the image on your website so you can actually strip that metadata out and so what the image bloat extension will do, you can enable it, you download it, you turn it on in the um, rules column in Fiddler. You hit the web page, it'll actually put a stack of bricks over the image to represent what percent of this image is actually metadata that's not helping the display and just weighing down your image. So you can go to sites that have images that are 75% covered with a brick. So it's really obvious when you look at it that you should be stripping that metadata out. Yeah, it's, a, it's an excellent tip. Um, I feel like as a developer, we take a lot of um, flack from, you know, or, or time invested in uh, finding out how large our JavaScript files are and stuff like that and spend a lot of time minifying and, and bundling all that stuff up. And then we, we don't focus on things, you know, like static resources, uh, right. especially images and you know, people will argue back and forth over the size of jQuery, but they don't pay attention to the, you know, four megabyte image that's serving right. as a backdrop for right. the page. Yep. Yeah, the average web page, I think they say, is about 63% images today. So if you want to find an area that's 
a quick hit. And you, you think of the five minutes and, you know, it took me five minutes to take that conference image and save in a couple qualities and look at it. Five minutes of work, everyone who visits my site from here on forward that's going to be downloading and I'm saving their phone bandwidth, I'm saving time, I'm saving my bandwidth. I mean, it's a huge win for a little bit of investment. Yeah, for somebody that went over their data plan twice last month, uh, that's, <laughs> that's kind of a big deal. Right. Yeah. Uh, and you, you had a lot of good tips uh, about Chrome developer tools as well. Uh, and I know we've been talking quite a bit about Fiddler. We mentioned Chrome a little bit. Uh, but you had some good stuff about working with uh, location APIs that I thought we could talk about. Yeah, so one of them, we've got various websites that use HTML5 geolocation so you can find where to pick up our product closest to where you currently are. And one of the features that's nice in the dev tools, if you go into dev tools and you go into the more tools, they have a sensors. You can actually go into the sensors and say, I want to over, uh, override my current geolocation. So whatever it would have figured out for me. I can actually go put in my, a specific Latin long. So then I can see how will my map change when I put in that the browser's advertising a different lat long than where I'm actually located. So that's a really helpful thing that's hard to do otherwise. Yeah, there's there's a lot of handy tools there in the Chrome developer tools. Uh, that being one of them, I use the, um, the tools for uh, showing your website at different uh, screen resolutions quite yep. a bit to do yep. you know, responsive web design. So there, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Yeah, I like they uh, added in it, the Google or the Chrome happen to be the only ones that do it too. In the network tab, they've added throttling. So you can actually go in and say, I want to act like I'm on a 2G connection or whatever connection you can put in your own specifications for latency and everything. And you can actually see that and, and refresh your web page and see what kind of experience someone's going to have with that kind of bandwidth, which has been hard to do in the past. So that's nice that that's built in as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, people tend to not think about, you know, people being on remote networks and everybody, you know, in the development world, we're like, okay, everybody's got this high speed computer and, right. and you know, a 10 gig Great pipe. And, right. Yeah. And, and a web server running on their own machine. <laughs> <laughs> right. But we, we tend to forget about uh, somebody on an iPhone that's driving through rural uh, Kentucky or Ohio, and they've just passed their seventh cornfield for the last hundred miles. Right. And, you know, they, they may be on the edge network, and uh, you still have to use these applications. Uh, you may actually be out on the farm on the cornfield working, right. <laughs> you know, in an application that's, uh, you know, built for... Um, agriculture or something. So you, there's a lot of handy tools out there for working on stuff like that. Yeah, like you said, the being able to show in dev tools the screen at different resolutions along with the network throttling. And you can also do a film strip in the network so you can actually record. I find this helpful as well. So you can go and have it be recorded so you can see the kind of the slow evolution of the paint so that you can show people this is what the experience of someone has when they're doing this at this bandwidth at that resolution over the course of X number of seconds so they can see the actual impact. Yeah, that's that's a really cool feature. It's fairly fairly new, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful uh, with the timeline that it gives you because users will give you the, the usual, um, you know, it took half an hour to load or, you know, some anecdotal you know, feeling of time, 
Uh, and then you can actually go to either their computer and do it on their computer and capture that uh, timeline, or you can try to mimic it on your own machine. But it, it gives you an accurate re representation of, oh, yeah, the screen was actually white for two seconds, which feels yes. like an eternity for the user. Uh, and then you can go from there to try to troubleshoot what's going on. And I think it helps, too, when you talk about the so the timeline they have both in DevTools and Fiddler. When you're talking about somebody wants to put a 4 meg image on a page because they think they need to, and you can't talk them out of it, but then you go and do something like that and record a timeline and show them the film strip, and they say, why did that take so long? And then you show them the really long bar and a timeline. For whatever reason, that visual representation of time really affects them, where they'll say, now I get why that is a bad idea. That's something that I am willing to optimize. For some reason, they respond better to some of those timeline views where they can see that sort of impact visually. Yeah, I think it's an interesting like human behavior there. Like it's it's some kind of concrete proof other than it's the feeling of it, I guess, the emotion right. of it. Right. Uh, you're like, oh, I can actually see numbers. Uh, you know, this is this is actual science telling me I'm wrong. <laughs> and it helps. So calls for correction. Yep. Um, so and we, we've talked about you know kind of mimicking uh, mobile behaviors. But what if we want to use an actual physical device like an iPhone or a tablet or maybe even just another computer uh, with Fiddler and kind of intercept network traffic on one of those type of devices? Yeah, so today I run Fiddler on my Windows all the time. And so it's not running on my iPhone. And yet, obviously, people are using all sorts of devices to connect to my website that I need to troubleshoot. And so what you can do... You can hook both your device and your laptop to the same wireless network. This is the easiest way to do it. You can go into Fiddler and you can set options to say allow remote computers to connect. You can get the IP address of your laptop. Then I'll go on to my iPhone and it's not where you would expect it. It's a proxy setting. So Fiddler acts as a proxy. So you want to set the proxy setting Usually I look for that in a browser. It's not actually in Safari settings on iOS. It's actually part of your wireless settings. So if you go in your wireless network and you scroll all the way down on your iPhone, you can see a manual proxy setting. You just type in the IP address of your laptop. You put in the default Fiddler port of 8888, and then everything you do through your phone then is going to get routed through the wireless network through your laptop and through Fiddler, so you get all the same tracing and everything else that you can do in Fiddler, but you're getting it for whatever device you're setting up and pointing at Fiddler in that way, which makes you able to do all the same stuff you did before and troubleshoot, even though you're running it on an iPhone. Yeah, this is super helpful in this day and age when we've got more than just phones as well. Uh, as you're talking, I'm picturing, you know, using like a HoloLens or something and needing to troubleshoot some kind of traffic that's coming in and out of my application. Right. Uh, so you've got all kinds of devices these days that are connected to your network and uh, you can intercept that traffic and, and figure out what's going on. Like I said, inside that black box, like if right. you don't have this stuff, then it's completely uh, just, you're, you're throwing it into a void and hoping that it's working. Uh, so it's extremely helpful. Um, part of the show is usually giving people advice on how to get started with stuff like this. And we're fortunate that you actually have a lot of resources out there uh, to get people started 
Uh, so you actually have a Pluralsight course you mentioned at the beginning uh, to get started with Pluralsight or uh, Fiddler. Yes. Yep. So I've got about a two hour plus that goes into all of the major features. So it starts out with just how it functions, how it gets set up, how it adjusts your browser, how to do basic tracing, how to look at a website from a performance perspective and identify particular pieces of the request and things that you could tweak. I do talk about how you can make modifications to pages on the fly. So the Fiddler really got its name from, it's not just a, a trace tool, you can actually make modifications. So I spend a lot of time in the course. <laughs> the example I used in there, Pluralsight used to have their top 100 courses, and unfortunately I was never number one. But for all my talks, I would actually save off their top 100 page on my hard disk. I made myself number one. You can actually have Fiddler then intercept the request to that internet URL and display it off for your machine instead. So at least if you were using my machine, it looked like I was number one. <laughs> but that's some of the cool stuff that you just can't do. You know, dev tools and other things can't do. You literally can do uh, compositions of requests. So the other thing I'll do is I show how you can make a normal request to a web server and it sends up what language you're using. And if you have a site that's multilingual and you want to see what would happen with another language, you can just drag that request to the composer tab and literally just type over, you know, change what's going to get sent to the server and then see what gets sent back to the browser. And that stuff's really powerful. So I go into that, uh, creating extensions and a lot of other things as well. So it's, it goes through pretty much all the major features of Fiddler. Excellent stuff. We'll put a link to your Pluralsight course in the show notes. Uh, along with a link to Fiddler, you can find that at uh, Telerik.com slash Fiddler. And um, we'll, we'll put some show notes up at developer.telerik.com. Um, along with your Pluralsight course, Robert, where else can we find you? I go to a lot of conferences, so I probably do about 10 to 15 conferences a year. So I've got a VS Live, a Dev Connections, a couple more this fall yet. Um, Lots of those sorts of places, code camps, various places. And I've got seven other Pluralsight courses and places like that. Excellent. So uh, if you see Robert out at a conference, make sure you say hello. And uh, make sure you check out Fiddler. Again, it's a free tool, 100% uh, free, no strings attached, cool stuff. Um, if you've uh, used Fiddler before and you're very fond of it, check out some of the other things that we have. Uh, we have amazing UI components and tools for .NET and HTML uh, with Kendo UI and uh, the UIs for ASP.NET uh, applications. So that covers everything .NET related, uh, Xamarin, uh, ASP.NET MVC and Core. And uh, we appreciate it if you take a look at that stuff and uh, download a free trial. Robert, thanks again for being on the show. Hopefully we gave people uh, some new tools to arm themselves with and solve some of these web headaches. Yeah, well, thank you for having me.